into Revelation 21 this morning. We are studying this incredibly glorious portion of God's Word that is looking forward to, as the title of our message says, our eternal home. The whole point of why, just to give it away from the beginning, the whole point of why uh, these things are in the Bible is because like our last hymn that we just sung, or sang, says uh, that we are to be strong in the Lord because of these great things that He is doing for us and that He will do for us in the future. And that's, uh, that's the walk of faith. That's what it means to walk by faith. That is the motivation. The motivation for our uh, Christian living is not so that we earn God's favor. It's not so that we can uh, earn our salvation. That is, that is as Paul says uh, in his writings, you know, that's all rubbish. I give up all of that stuff. And if ever there was a person who was, quote-unquote, earning his salvation, it was Paul. In terms of the law and the Bible, he was perfect. He was an Israelite after all. I, I don't, I'm not sure, but none of us even fit into that category right off the bat. We're not Israelites. We're not Jewish people. Uh, at least I can speak for myself. <laughs> I'm not. And he kept the law perfectly. And he just throws all of that away because all of it is meaningless in terms of our salvation. God has graciously offered His salvation to us in the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, eternal God, who came into this world to die for our sins on the cross and rise again on the third day, according to the Scriptures, showing that everything He, he did and said was the truth, that He is God, and that He offers eternal life to us. There's so much wrapped up in the resurrection, uh, that it's not just uh, just a one-off thing or you know something that's kind of fanciful, that's uh, a miracle, and we ought to disregard it. No, pretty much everything that that God has done and is doing in the world depends on that resurrection. We have faith in that for the payment for our sins or to receive forgiveness from God. Jesus Christ did it all on the cross, and we receive it by trusting in it. We receive salvation by trusting in what Christ did for us, not in, not in our good works and these kinds of things. And then we live by faith, knowing that God has done this for us, knowing that He has this incredible place that is prepared for us to live in forever. And we'll look at some of those uh, details this morning as we continue looking at this wonderful book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the, the real title of the book of Revelation that we often refer to it uh, as. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the final revelation of Jesus Christ and what He is going to do in the future 
to make life the way it was originally intended to be. I've said that uh, maybe a hundred times over the last uh, 86 weeks. But that is to remind us that that's the point of Revelation, the Revelation, the Revelation of Christ, the last book in our Bibles. It is to wrap up and to show us that God is going to accomplish his original purpose in this world. He created everything in Genesis 1. We read about that uh, right, from the, right from the first pages of our Bible in the 21st century. We are uh, presented with the opportunity to have faith in God's Word over what the world will tell us. The world will tell us we're fools for believing that God created the world in six 24-hour days. Uh, How can you possibly believe that? Science tells us that it's taken millions and billions of years. Well, science told us that if we wear masks, we won't get COVID. (laughs) Science tells us a lot of things that are uh, not correct. And one of those is that the world took billions of years by chance to come into existence. That's ridiculous. It's much easier for me personally to believe that an almighty creator created it with his spoken word in six literal days, as it says in the Bible, than that all of this just came together by chance, and poof, here we are. Uh, So God created the world. He created life to be a certain way. He wants us to have fellowship with him perfectly, live with him in perfect fellowship in harmony. That's his intention. Revelation tells us how that is going to come to pass. In fact, the entire Bible actually has been telling us how that, what God is doing to make that possible. Revelation wraps it up for us and tells us the exact events that will take place for us to have life with God in perfect harmony and fellowship forever. And so he writes about the things, Revelation 119, our outline passage, the things which you have seen, the risen Christ, the things which are letters to literal churches from the first century, the things which will take place after these things. That's what Revelation is known for. This section from chapter 4 all the way to the end of, end of the book, primarily concerned with this seven-year Uh, tribulation period that we spent a lot of time uh, studying, leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ, the establishment of the kingdom on earth, and where we are now, that we've moved beyond even the kingdom that will be on the earth for a thousand years, past the great white throne judgment, and into what theologians call the eternal state, how we will live with God forever, the way it was intended to be. That's Revelation 21 and 22. And last time, if you'll remember, we we began in uh, verse 10, made it down to, oh, about verse, I think we made it through verse 13 last time, didn't finish everything up, but we saw this, the great glory that will, is, will be contained in this city, the, what we refer to as the New Jerusalem. Here it just calls it the Jerusalem, or it just calls it Jerusalem, the city 
that's coming down out of heaven from God, this holy city. We refer to it as the new Jerusalem because it is new. It's different from the one that you can uh, fly over to Tel Aviv now and then take a bus down and do the tour of the city of Jerusalem. This one is different than that. It is a new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven to a new earth and will rest there. We'll see today. And the uh, the main point of this passage, uh, well, there are several points. One point at, at any rate is that there both Israel and the church are mentioned as being important uh, in this new Jerusalem. Last time we looked at the gates, which have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on them. And so we took some time to look at the nation of Israel and its importance in God's program for moving the world from a place of sin and everybody doing what's in right in their own eyes, like we see basically in Genesis 3 and forward, after sin enters into the problem or into the situation, uh, we have a problem. We can't live with God in perfect fellowship anymore. Something else has to happen. And that something is... Uh, promise to the seed will come to the seed of the woman. That uh, Eve is going to have a lineage from her that through which this problem of sin is going to be solved. And of course, that's the person of Jesus Christ. He will come from a literal nation of people that is promised from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had 12 sons. And uh, these are the 12 sons who will be on the 12 gates. Their names will be on the 12 gates of the New Jerusalem, signifying or helping us to remember the importance of Israel in God's plan for making life the way it's supposed to be. This isn't a replacement of Israel. This isn't, oh, he's just mentioning it here in Revelation because uh, the church became Israel, or the church replaced Israel. None of that. No, he, he is reminding us of the importance of the nation of Israel and these 12 tribes, the descendants of whom, uh, one of the descendants of whom is the seed of the woman who came through uh, the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, the one who would die for our sins. And so uh, what are the exact 12 names that are going to be on these gates? Because uh, theologians like to say, well, nearly every time we see the list of the 12 tribes, it's different names, and this one's included, this one isn't. Joseph, you never see Joseph included as one of the 12 tribes. It's always Manasseh and Ephraim, his two sons. Uh, and so, yeah, it gets kind of complicated. And... Uh, I would, my opinion would be that it's the 12 sons. The actual 12 sons will be the ones that Joseph's name will be on one of the gates. That's just my opinion. Uh, somebody else probably has a different one. And the reason for that is because the text doesn't tell us. We have to speculate about that uh, answer to that question. And so uh, that can get us into some trouble. 
and we'll see that again a little bit later with the 12 apostles. Uh, Nevertheless, the book of Revelation is showing how God will fulfill his covenantal promises to the nation of Israel. Uh, And the nation of Israel is going to play a prominent role in the future tribulation period. And uh, we've seen that in Revelation. If you'll remember the the 144,000 witnesses, there were 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. There, There is no reason at all to take that as being a, oh, wow, that means the church. <laughs> there is nowhere in the Bible where it says Israel, and uh, scratch that out, and he actually meant church when he said Israel. Not a single one. Uh, I'll challenge you, even Galatians, it doesn't, where it says Israel, it doesn't mean church. It means Israel and Romans 9, like we uh, saw this morning in Sunday school. God has made unconditional promises to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will make, be a great blessing to them. He will make a nation from them, a land, seed, and blessing. They'll have a physical land. That's Israel. They will have a seed. The seed of the woman will come through David, promised to rule and reign forever. That's Jesus Christ. There will be a uh, a covenant of blessing, the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, people will be saved by placing their faith in the seed and they will receive the Holy Spirit and receive eternal life. That's the new covenant, land, seed, and blessing. Uh, there will be a literal kingdom upon the earth ruled over by Jesus Christ in the land of Israel with saved people there. That's this uh, thousand-year kingdom period that is back here that we learned about. In Revelation 20, we saw that it's literally a thousand years. That's the only place in the Bible that it says that this kingdom period will last for a thousand years upon the earth, but it says it six times, so we might as well take it for, for what it says. There will be a literal kingdom on this earth after the tribulation period that we learned about in Revelation or yes, Revelation 6 through 19. The reason why we have to have this tribulation period is to drive the nation of Israel to have faith in Christ. That's the whole point. When the nation of Israel believes in Jesus as their Messiah, he will come again and establish his kingdom on the earth. He said that in Matthew chapter 23, right from the words of Christ. You won't, you won't uh, see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It will take seven years of unprecedented judgment poured out by God to get the nation to say to Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Seven seal judgments, six poured out. The seventh leads to the trumpet judgments. The Antichrist will uh, set up the abomination of desolation at the midpoint of the tribulation. And then seven bull judgments will be poured out upon the earth, at which time the nation of Israel will uh, 
believe in Christ as their Messiah. So all of these events are future events. They will happen during the seven-year tribulation period. Not a single one of these seals has been broken. COVID wasn't the fourth seal. Uh, none of that. That isn't, there's no mark of the beast in the world today. Uh, the, the, your credit card isn't somehow secretly the mark of the beast. All of these kinds of ideas that are out there. None of these things have happened. None of the trumpet judgments, none of the bold judgments, they are all uh, future things. This entire section of the book is written, remember Revelation 1.19, the things which will take place after these things. And so when Christ comes again, he will establish his kingdom upon the earth. And then we move into what we're studying now, our eternal home, this new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth, what will take place after the kingdom period. So uh, I understand that these get, this uh, can get complicated. That's why we review it. So today we'll see it, the, the makeup of our eternal home, its measurements, and its majesty. And today it's a little bit uh, a little bit different. We won't just progress through verse by verse, uh, at least in this initial part. We'll look at verse 14 and then skip down to verse 18 verses 18 through 21 to see its makeup. But again, notice verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Verse 18, the material of the wall was jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. And I won't read all of those names again for you. Uh, Verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So notice again this wall of the city that uh, not only does the city have gates, this new Jerusalem, but it also has walls, which is an in- it, always an indication to at least a first century reader of this book, the ones to whom it was originally written. They're, they're going to see this wall of the city. Ah, it's a secure place. It's got gates and it's got this incredible high wall around it. And uh, this idea of the, the wall and the security reminds us of the fact that there is great security in Jesus Christ because we're going to see we've already, in our, from our scripture reading, you already know that God the Father and Jesus Christ are there. This is their city. This is God's city. And we have the privilege of being able to live there with him. And so it is a reminder to us that there is great security in Jesus Christ. In fact, there is a great assurance, there is eternal security in Jesus Christ. Jesus says so, or reminds us again also of this fact in John 10, 
in verse 27 where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So it's been said before that we are in the double grip of grace, if you will. Jesus Christ has us in his hand. God the Father has his hand over the top. And there is no way that we are getting out of God's grip over us. And we enter into Christ's hand by trusting in him. He doesn't, uh, it, it's not completely clear from this passage how we get into the Father's hand. That's why some folks will use this and say, oh, see, faith has nothing to do with it. You're just in the hands and, and that's the way it goes. God made that personal choice for you in, eternal, in eternity past. He picked you to go into his hand and he excluded this person over there they don't have the opportunity to go into God's hand. And in order to do that, you need to rip this passage and other passages right out of the book and only look at those verses and disregard the entirety of the text of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John could not be any more clear on the topic of how a person is saved if it wanted to. <laughs> We are saved by believing in Christ and what he did for us on the cross. Believe, believe, believe the single condition of salvation. There's not a list of do's and don'ts. Do this, make sh really make sure you do this one and really make sure that you don't do this sin over here in order to have salvation. Jesus never, ever says that. He offers one single condition to you as a person, to every person, because after all, when he is lifted up, he will draw a subset of people to himself or all people to himself. What does the text say? People like to just kind of refer to the Bible and just kind of... Uh, hover over it and make statements about it and this, that, and the other thing to prove their theological positions. But what does the text actually say? That's the, that is the important matter. Jesus says he will draw all men to himself. 1 John 2.2 2 says that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, not just ours, but the whole world has the ability or the opportunity to trust in Christ because Christ paid for the sins of the whole world. And so when we believe in him, we go into his hand, into the Father's hand. Christ and the Father are one, and there is nothing that any person can do to take you out of the Father's hand. And in fact, you can't do anything to get out of there either. There is great security in Jesus Christ, and there is great security in this New Jerusalem. Because after all, eternal life means eternal. Uh, that means forever. So when you have it, you, you have it. 
<laughs> that's just by definition. That's what, what it means. And this is found in Jesus Christ, 1 John 2, 25. This is the promise which he himself made to us. Jesus Christ made the promise to us. Eternal life. 1 John 5, 11, And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And we have it by way of faith in him. And so also, this wall has a solid foundation. The wall isn't just kind of floating out there. That You may come across this idea that the, uh, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and it just sort of hovers over the earth. There's a lot of confusion. Some people will see this new Jerusalem as being during the kingdom period and that we can kind of teleport ourselves between the earth and the new Jerusalem and this kind of thing. I don't see it that way at all. This is after the thousand years have taken place. The book of Revelation is very sequential. There's some breaks in the action that we talked about, but it's very sequentially laid out throughout the book. The thousand years have completed. The great white throne judgment has taken place. And as it says there in Revelation 21, 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. There's a sequence of events taking place here. This is after the kingdom period. Speaking of the eternal state, and so this new Jerusalem isn't just coming out of heaven and hovering there. It comes to the new earth because after all, it has a foundation. Buildings that are hovering in space or that kind of thing, or the, uh, oh, what's it called? The space station out in space doesn't have a foundation. It's just, it's just there. It's in orbit, and it's, it's held there by gravity. The New Jerusalem is said here in the text to have a foundation. Buildings that are on a surface have a foundation. And as we're going to see, this foundation is uh, built upon the ideas that become very clear in the church age, one of which is that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, that's why we see the 12 apostles named here, or having their names, they're not named, uh, but their names are on these foundation stones signifying the importance of the church in God's program for moving the world into the way life was intended to be. So that foundation begins with the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Matthew 16, 18, if you'll remember when Jesus was on the earth, he asked the apostles, who do the, who do the people say that I am? Uh, oh, this, that, and the other thing. Okay, good. Who do you say that I am? Peter, of course steps up to the plate and says that you are the Christ. I love Peter. He gets a bad rap by pastors across the nation. Oh, Peter put his foot in his mouth again. Uh, I, I'd say he's the most courageous of the 12. He was, spoke his mind and here, grand slam, hit it out of the park, Peter, way to go. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, this statement that you made, that I am the Christ, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. 
Flushing Bible Church is one of those local churches that are playing a role in this uh, process that Christ is building his church. We are a local church, part of the universal church that Jesus is referring to here. We believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's why, that's why we're here. That's why we're here on Sunday morning, because Jesus is the Christ. We are members of a local church, but we're also the universal church, people who believe that Jesus is the Christ, and we're trusting in him exclusively for our salvation. Notice the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Uh, There will always be a remnant. There will always be a group of people who are trusting in Christ for their salvation until he removes us out of this world. Uh, The government in Washington, D.C., or Lansing, or Brussels, Belgium, or New York City, wherever the headquarters of uh, the opposition to God is, cannot overpower people trusting in Christ for their salvation. According to the words of Jesus, that cannot happen. He will build his church. The fact that Jesus is the Christ is the foundation. And then it moved forward from there to the apostles playing a role in laying the foundation for the church. Paul talks about that in Ephesians 2.19. Speaking primarily to Gentile people, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The the foundation for the church is Christ as Jesus as the Christ and the words that the apostles and the prophets uh, are laid down for us with Christ being the foundation. We talked a lot about this when we studied the book of Ephesians. You can go back and and uh, look at some of this if you would like. Uh, we won't go through all of it this morning, but nevertheless, the foundation of the new Jerusalem is uh, the truth that is expressed by Christ and the apostles, then we find it in our, in our Bibles. So, uh, the wall represents, kind of can remind us of security. It can remind us of our foundation that we have in Christ. I am not saying that this new Jerusalem is something symbolic, that uh, John is just representing these truths to us, the truth of Israel and the truth of, of, of uh, the security we have in Christ and the solid foundation of the church. And he's just poetically expressing these things by describing it this way. No, it is a literal structure that we, we as believers will live in for eternity with God in perfect harmony. However, there is symbolic meaning in some of the structures to remind us of the things that God did for us on the earth. Because after we'll be there for a long time, like trillions of years. This will be like a flash. Oh yeah, 
There was an Israel. Oh, remember the church and these kinds of things? I'm not sure it'll be exactly like that. But that's what God is doing here. He's showing the importance of Israel and the church in his process of bringing the world to the way life was supposed to be. And it will be in a literal place. In these found, and there, within these foundation stones, we see them uh, listed there, verses 19 through 20. And there are some similarities with the priestly garments. If you'll remember back in the book of Exodus, Israel had the, the, the Levites, the priests, had specific garments that they were to wear when they went into the tabernacle and later into the temple to worship God. He wanted them dressed in a specific way. And one of the specifics of it were the precious stones that they were to have on their garments that uh, most of the pictures or representations of that, you'll see it's like a chest, something that went onto their chest, 12 stones. And there are some similar stones with these that are listed. They're not exact representations. You can read about those in Exodus uh, 28. And uh, so they're, they're not exactly the same, but they're very similar. And it reminds us that it, of our access to God through Christ. Uh, the priests were only allowed into the Holy of Holies on one specific day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, notice there's a, a perfect example of the use of the word day. Yom is the word for day. There was one day when the priest could go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifices for the nation. That same word of course, is used in Genesis when it talks about what God did on day one, what he did on day two. Same, same word, yam, is used there. And so it is a, this can be a reminder to us that we too have access to God uh, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And oh, how much better that is than relying upon one priest to go in just once a day. We have access to God through Christ any day. In fact, any time. And he wants us to come into this kind of fellowship with him. Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The the priest could only go in there one time a year because that was the very presence of God was there in the Holy Spirit. Of holies. We, as believers in Christ, have the Holy Spirit residing within us. Uh, Christ did that for us. He said that He would, that He would send the Comforter to us, and He has done that. We have Him residing within us, and uh, Christ's sacrifice is more perfect than that of blood 
the blood of bulls and goats and these kinds of things, we have direct access to God. Uh, through the shed blood of Christ, reminiscent of what the priests could do and the fact that they had these kinds of precious stones as well that are the foundation of this new Jerusalem. And the 12 stones have the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb written upon them, it says there in verse 14. So who whose name's going to be on it? Because Judas, of course, you know, everybody thinks, oh, Judas, well, of course he's excluded. He couldn't possibly be the one, Judas Iscariot. Uh, his name's got to be scratched. So uh, then in Acts 1, they Peter heads up the idea of selecting Matthias or choosing by lots Matthias and that that was God's will. That's kind of foreign to us. It was not foreign at all to the Israelite people for them to do that sort of thing. And after all, they are Jewish people uh, who were doing this. And so that uh, wasn't a crazy idea for them. It wasn't like gambling or something along those lines. This was something that, that God had told them to do in other circumstances, the Israelite people. And so they choose Matthias, or is it the Apostle Paul who wrote uh, more books of the Bible than any other person, uh, who is the Apostle to the Gentiles and these kinds of things that are very clearly written in Scripture? Uh, I don't know. The text doesn't tell us, so we probably shouldn't speculate. I have an opinion. Uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who is much smarter than I am, has a different opinion than I would. I would, my personal opinion is that it would be Paul, other great, wonderful scholars who know a lot about the Bible uh, say that it will be Matthias. Nobody ever says that it will be Judas Iscariot, even though he was one of the original 12. Uh, but yeah, he kind of had a falling out there in the end. Uh, so probably not him. Uh, and so we also see not only does this uh, city have a wall and this foundation, it also has gates that we'll, that we'll get to. This means that people can come and go is sort of the implication there. Uh, it will be the place that, that believers will live, and we're going to get into how, how big it actually is, but uh, people will be able to come and go from this city. And it has gates of pearl. Not one pearly gate, quote-unquote, that we always say, but each gate is made up of one pearl. So there are actually 12 of them. And each gate is named for a tribe, uh, as, we'll, as we've already talked about, 12 tribes of Israel. Similar to the way that, the, that uh, the temple area will be in the kingdom period that you can read about in Ezekiel 48, verses 31 and 34. This is not talking about the same thing. It's similar to, but dramatically different. This one, as we're going to see, is 1,500 miles long. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, each one is named uh, for a tribe. And so that is a reminder to us. We've already seen that this is the bride of uh, the Lamb. 
it says there in verse 9, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And it is this new Jerusalem where believers, Old and New Testament, and I don't think it's going too far out on a limb to say that people from the tribulation period and the millennial period will be in this New Jerusalem for eternity. Believers of all ages will be there living in perfect fellowship with God and Christ. But it is an indication to us of the importance of Israel, names on the 12 gates, the church, names on the foundation stones of the 12 apostles, as we are the family of God who come out of these institutions and will live with God forever. And notice also that the street is made of pure gold. It is like glass, it says there. It's not glass, it's like glass, it says. And we've seen that in Revelation 4. It it spoke of that uh, same kind of scene when John is called up to heaven before the tribulation period begins. John is taken up to heaven. He sees the scene of heaven and it was a sea of glass around the throne of God. A great reminder, again, not that it's describing only the riches that we have in Christ in some kind of symbolic or spiritual way, but it is a great reminder of the riches, spiritual riches, of course, that we have in Christ. Ephesians 3, 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Interesting there, that the family of God or household of God, he's mentioning there, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Notice that there's no mention of your bank account there. It's not give to the church so that you can get rich when really the only people who get rich out of that deal are the ones who are getting the money from the people. Uh, that's not clearly not what he's talking about here at all. He's talking about the spiritual riches that we have in Christ as represented by the fact that this new Jerusalem is incredible. There, there is incredible wealth there untold. Also notice the, the kind of uh, connection there that Babylon, if you remember that the, the city that will come up in the tribulation period, kind of the headquarters of the Antichrist, if you'll remember, Babylon, literal place on the earth, uh, is an imitation of the things that we see in the New Jerusalem. If you'll remember, Revelation 17, 4 and 5, it describes uh, the woman riding on the beast. We're not going to reteach all of that. You can go back and review the, the meaning of all of that. Uh, Revelation 17, 4, the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup 
full of abominations of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. She's got all these precious stones and gold and pearls, and she's dressed like a queen, uh, uh, royalty and all of these kinds of things. Seems like she's trying to imitate the things of God and the precious stones that the priests had on their garments and that are, will make up the foundation stones in the future. This is also a great reminder to us of the fact that clearly Babylon is in error. There's no, there's no uh, denying that. But she does have the accoutrements of God on the outside. So there's kind of some truth and some error mixed there. And when you take truth plus error, you get error. It doesn't end up with truth. That's why we kind of, that's why we do our best. I'm not saying that I'm perfect or uh that dispensationalists are perfect and we've got all the answers and everything, but one thing that we do have is the text of the Bible. And the text is perfect. God's word is perfect. And we are trying to pull out of the text what it says and transmit it to the world, to you. So we're doing our best to have just the truth and and not adding in error. Uh, others are uh, just referring to the text and just kind of, oh yeah, open your Bibles and then I'm going to talk to you about other things. Uh, and introduce error. Some intentionally mix truth with error, and that, again, ends up with error. Even if there's a little nuggets of truth here and there, things to be avoided. Notice also the measurements. If we go back up to verse 15, we see that this angel who is speaking to John here, or is with John, uh, measures this city. Verse 15 of Revelation 21, the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Language there can be a little bit confusing, but some takeaways that this angel uh, has a gold measuring rod and is the one doing the measuring here, and it, it lays out the specifics of this place. And you know, that's happened a few other times uh, in the scriptures where we have literal temples, literal tabernacles described and measurements and the makeup of them, how God wanted them to be constructed, the materials that were to be used in the, in the construction. And guess what? Uh, the first two times that happened, there were literal places. Actually, the first three times that happened, there were literal places with literal tabernacles, literal temples with literal measurements given to the people who were to construct it by God. Begins with the tabernacle in Exodus 25. Uh, the first temple, of course, was uh, 
explicit directions on how it was to be constructed, the size of it, the materials, a literal place. Second temple, same thing. Millennial temple, a temple that will exist in the future. You can read about that in Exodus 40 uh, through the end of the book, really. But Exodus 40 and 42 give the exact description of how that temple will be constructed. This is doing the same thing. So if we're familiar with our Bibles, remember Revelation 1-3, a great blessing for reading, heeding, and hearing the things that we are in this book. Go back and study other parts of the book that talk about temples, and you'll see they were literal places. This is a reminder to us that this is a literal place that, that uh, probably exists right now, but will come and where we will live for eternity, giving the exact details of the place in which we will live with God forever. The, the tabernacle, a real literal place. First temple, a real literal place. Millennial temple, a real literal place that will exist in the future. New Jerusalem, a real literal place with literal uh, dimensions that are described here. And so in my, my mind, when I hear about this uh, city being laid out square and its height is uh, the same as its length and width, uh, in my mind, I immediately think of a cube uh, as being described. Other people think differently uh, and they think pyramid. Pyramid has a square bottom as well and has a height and they make the case that, after all, God's throne is at the top, and that river has to, we'll see in Revelation 22, that, that river has to have a way to flow out of that uh, throne where God is. And so the only way it could do that is if it was a temple, or if it was a pyramid. Uh I don't, I don't know if I go along with that. I'd prob- I think it's most likely a cube a- again, speculation. Uh, you kind of get, you can get yourself into trouble. I uh, flew with a guy one time that was just, he was desperately interested in, in all of the details of uh, the new Jerusalem and reading in a lot of things. And it can get off the rails pretty quick when we, when we do that. Uh, the temple was a cube. Uh, and so I think this probably will be the same. After all, the pagans use pyramids uh, in, their, in their form of worship. But again, good people disagree. And that's because the text doesn't expressly tell us. So take that for what it's worth. Uh, the dimensions of this city, are, of this New Jerusalem, are massive. You can, we can just kind of read this. You might be very familiar with this and think, oh, 1,500 miles. And in today's world, you know, 1,500 miles uh, yeah, I go on flights all the time that are that long. It's about the distance from Dallas, Texas to Los Angeles is 1,500 miles. Uh, Philadelphia to Dallas going the other way, it's about that, that length. Uh, the 1,500, that's also up for discussion. Uh, it's, the text actually says 12,000 stadia, uh, I don't know about you, but we don't typically measure in stadia today. And so there's some debate over how long a stadion is. 
Is it 542 feet? Is it 600 feet? Is it something in between that? And so the translators of the NASB came up with 1,500 miles, uh, making it close to the stadia or the measuring, close to 600 feet. And again, it mentions the length, the width, and the height, uh, the riches in Christ. If you remember when we read that, it talks about the length, height, the breadth, of the love of Christ, the, the great riches that are, that are there uh, in this wall. He measures the wall and finds it to be 144 cubits is what, what the text actually says there uh, in the original, if I could find it for you. Uh, in verse 17 yeah, the NASB says 72 yards. It's actually 144 cubits, which interestingly is 12 times 12. Uh, again, just some interesting things. I wouldn't take too much out of that. But again, there is great security in God's plan of how he is bringing salvation to the world. A great, great reminder uh, to us. And again, and that the the measuring of the wall there is probably a description of the height. So it's a pretty tall wall, 216 feet uh, tall. Uh, and the kind of the confusion comes in, what does he mean? Which are also angelic measurements. That's kind of weird. Well, difficult translation. He's probably saying that the angel did the measuring and he measured it the same way that we measure things. That's essentially is what is, is being expressed there. Again, denoting the fact that this is a literal place that we will live in literally in the future forever. Finally, notice its majesty. Verse 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There is no temple structure within this city, and that is because the entire thing is the temple. Temples were given to, or the temple was given to the nation of Israel so that God would have a dwelling place among his people. Well, this is the dwelling place of God that is being described here. God, the Father, and Christ are in the temple here, as is uh, plainly stated in the text. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. They are literally and physically there. This is the temples that we have on the earth and the, the tabernacle were representations of the, of the reality of the situation, the place where God dwells. Hebrews 9.23 through 28 makes that pretty clear. 
where he says, therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So the the parts of the temple and uh, tabernacle were copies of the things which were in heaven, had to be cleansed with the blood of the animals. This new heaven, the one that we are uh, trusting in, where we will live forever is much better than that because as the author of Hebrews will say here, it's been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Verse 24, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He, He sacrificed himself for our sins and then went to, I believe, this new Jerusalem and presented himself to God on our behalf. Verse 25, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait him. Uh, Christ sacrificed himself for our sins, presented himself in heaven after having made the sacrifice in this, I believe, in this literal place that is going to come to the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell forever with God. And he already has given us the down payment of this future dwelling with him in the Holy Spirit. Christ dwells in us in the Holy Spirit by way of faith. Colossians 1 25. Paul says of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us is the hope of the glory that we will have in the future in this new Jerusalem. He has made a down payment to us by indwelling us with the Holy Spirit, which is a promise of the future that we will have with him forever. This is the riches of the glory, same kind of language that he uses in Ephesians 3 there that we talked about, these spiritual riches that he has lavished upon us cause us to hope in the future that we will have with him. Remind us of that. So keep walking by faith today, in spite of the problems, in spite of the disease, in spite of the heart attacks and the government intrusion in your life and the the uh, problems, physical problems that we all have, keep walking by faith in Christ as a believer because we have this future with him forever. Three trillion years from now, 
We will be living with Christ in the new Jerusalem. This will be a vapor compared to the, the eternity that we have with him. The glory is so incredible that we don't need the sun and the moon. That doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be a sun and a moon. Their light will not be needed, the text specifically says, in the new Jerusalem because God will be there. God is the light. Christ will be there. Christ is the light of the world, he says uh, in the Gospel of John. God dwells in unapproachable light. Of course, there won't, you won't need any light in the new Jerusalem. In fact, I don't think you're going to need any light anywhere in the new heavens and the new earth because God and his glory will be manifested there. God is light. John 1, uh, 1 John 1, 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Christ went to the, to the festival in John 8 and proclaimed that he is the light of the world. And Jesus spoke to them, John 8, 12, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 36, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. The, the authorities knew exactly what Jesus was claiming when he said these things. Notice again, John 12, 36, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become the sons of light. He doesn't say, make sure you only do the deeds of the light and never do a deed of darkness. Otherwise you won't be in the light anymore. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. You become a son of the light by a single condition, believing in the light, believing in Christ and his sacrifice for your sins, and then you have eternal life. If once isn't enough, he says it again, 10 verses later, John 12, 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. The Gospel of John says it a hundred times. Believe in Christ in order to have the hope of this incredible eternal glory that we have with him. And it says that only glory and honor will enter into the city. Uh, nations and kings will bring their glory into this city. Again, there's coming and going. There's life. It's not just people strumming harps, sitting on clouds. There, I think we're going to be doing things. Again, don't want to speculate too much, but just taking from what the text says, there's still going to be nations. There's still going to be kings in eternity, and they're bringing their glory into the new Jerusalem. I Obviously, these are believing nations, believing kings. Uh, and then he does mention that nothing unclean will come into this city. In fact, it emphasizes it with the double negative in Greek, uh, a way of emphasizing the fact that nothing, no nothing will unclean will come into this city or 
uh, person. It doesn't mean, we'll see this same kind of language later, it doesn't mean that unsaved people are going to be kind of knocking on the gates or trying to get over the wall in the eternal state, this kind of thing. It's just a reminder to us that this, you won't be there. As an unbeliever, you won't be in the eternal state with God and Christ. You won't be there. You are excluded from it. And you're excluded from it because your works don't match up with the righteousness of God. Wait a second. I thought you just said it doesn't have anything to do with your works. It has everything to do with your works if you refuse to believe. If you refuse to trust in Christ and what he did for you on the cross, salvation has everything to do with your works. In fact, it's exclusively your works because you're a sinner. No matter the good that you do, you are a sinful person and your sin separates you from a holy God. And the only way to remove that barrier, that separation is to trust in the light. So I would invite you, while you have the light, believe in the light. The light is, it emanates from the pages of Scripture for us that Jesus is the light and he paid for the sins of the world with his precious blood. And he offers us eternal life with him simply by trusting in him. If you refuse to trust, then it's up to you and your good works and that isn't going to end well for you. As we will see again later in the book of Revelation, God is trying to get our attention with something. He's repeating who will be excluded from the new Jerusalem. Many, many times he does this throughout the book of Revelation to remind us that salvation is only through faith in Christ. So our eternal home, it's makeup, it's uh, made up of these gates and these foundation stones. Israel and the church are very prominent in God's plan for the future. It, its measurements are incredible. 50, I didn't mention the height, 1,500 miles into space, the space shuttle. I used to, the space shuttle doesn't go anymore, but its highest orbits were like 200 miles over there. 1,500 miles into space. This thing is massive uh, beyond what we can really uh, understand, as is its majesty. The, the incredible glory of God that is there that in fact lights it 24 hours a day. Don't need the sun anymore because God is there. And we can be there too if we will just simply trust in him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Revelation. Uh, we thank you for the hope and the glory that we see there, this glorious future that we will have with you if we will trust in you. I thank you for making salvation very simple and very clear in your word, uh, and that we can simply have it by trusting in you. We need to humble ourselves and realize that we, that we are not good. We're not able to uh, live in a way that is completely pleasing to you on our own. And, it, uh, and you knew that from the foundation of the world, and you've made salvation so easy for us if we would just simply trust in you and what you did for us on the cross. We thank you for that, 
And I pray that the, that the simplicity of the gospel would motivate us to live for you every day of our lives as we look forward to spending eternity with you in this glorious place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.